Amen. You can be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. Welcome to our viewers online as well. Two of the, two, two of the greatest truths that the Bible teaches um, are that God is both sovereign, meaning he's in control of all events, and that he's good, right? Meaning that he's righteous and he is benevolent in all he does. That means that even though bad things happen, um, even though there are evil people in the world, even though there are demonic forces in the world, um, God's good plan will prevail in the end. In fact, Scripture says God accomplishes all according to his plan. Ephesians 1.11 says this, Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. And then Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So God is always overseeing, and he's working behind the scenes um, through events, through circumstances, even through evil. Um, he is ultimately working everything in order to accomplish his will, which includes uh, blessing his people and glorifying his name. One of the best places we see this throughout all of Scripture is in the Old Testament character of Joseph. Um, and today we are beginning a sermon series on Joseph. I think most of us are probably familiar with this story, um, but I want to give you a, kind of a quick intro. So Joseph was born in the Mesopotamian town of Haran. Um, his parents were Jacob and Rachel. At the age of six, Joseph left Haran along with his family and traveled south to Canaan. They eventually settled in Hebron. Joseph was born into a polygamous family, right? And so it was very divided. Jacob had had 13 kids with four different wives. 12 sons, one daughter. The daughter was Dinah. So Joseph was number 12 of the 13 kids and number 11 of the 12 sons. It didn't help that Jacob showed more affection to Joseph than his other kids. It was probably because Joseph was born uh, in his father's old age, right? And because of Jacob's favoritism towards his son Joseph, um, he gave Joseph a specially made colorful coat, right, which made his brothers jealous. And then, of course, when Joseph shares his dreams with his brothers, right, that, that one day they would be bowing down to him, of course, it made them even more jealous. Then one day, Jacob tells Joseph to go visit his brothers in Shechem, uh, where they're tending sheep. And of course, Jacob had no way of knowing 
that when he sent Joseph away, he would not see his son again for another 22 years. Joseph's older brothers at first were going to kill him and throw him in the pit. Um, One of the other brothers, though, Reuben, uh, convinces the rest of the brothers to just, just throw him in the pit without killing him, right? So they would not be responsible, at least in their minds, for Joseph's death. Reuben actually comes back to try to save Joseph, but while he's gone, Joseph is sold into slavery. So today I want to spend most of our time talking about that pit that Joseph was in. Title of this message is Life in the Pit. Have you ever felt like you were in a pit? Um, We all end up in a pit sooner or later. So what's a pit? A pit really is any difficult situation uh, that just leaves us feeling hopeless, helpless. And you feel like there's no way out of it. How do we end up in a pit? Well, several ways. Uh, Sometimes we end up in a pit of our own making. We make choices we wish we hadn't. Uh, we, We develop habits in our lives that are hurtful, harmful. Sometimes it goes beyond that and we're in a pit of our own addictions. You feel stuck, you feel trapped, you feel like there's no escape. A pit can be a loss of vision or direction for your life. Like you feel like you've lost your way. Sometimes you feel like you've fallen, in the words of that commercial from the 80s, you've fallen and you can't get back up. Sometimes you feel like it is the devil himself that put you in that pit. That pit uh, that you're in can feel like an early grave, like, like the devil dug that just for you so that he can bury you alive. Pits also have no windows. Um, scripture describes pits as places of darkness. We no longer can see the things that were once obvious to us. Uh, That's another reason why we often stay in our pit, right? Without windows, we're convinced that we have nowhere else to go. We could look up, but we're often too focused uh, looking at our sinking feet in the pit. In the pit, we can become completely self-absorbed. Our visibility can extend only just a few inches from our noses. We can't see. We can't see anything, and so we we turn our sights inward. And after a while, our nearsightedness just turns into hopelessness. Sometimes we get thrown into the pit, right, without doing anything to deserve it. For you know who or what hit you, you're in the pit. That's what happened to Joseph in today's scripture. Verses 23 to 25 say this. 
So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, and I cut it off there. All right, so, so the pit that Joseph was thrown into was a cistern, right, used to hold water. But this one had no water in it. Uh, one scholar made an interesting observation about this pit that Joseph's in. Um, the pit where there is no water is another name for Hades, the underworld, the place of the dead. Um, the pit is literally the place of the dead. And Jesus referred to this pit when he prophesied his own death in Matthew 12, verse 40. He says this, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So in our scripture today, we see Jacob's favoritism um, causes Joseph's older brothers to throw their 17-year-old, he's 17, 17-year-old little brother into the pit with the intention of just letting him die. Now let that sink in for a minute. Now you've heard this story so many times, like, the brother's actions don't seem like a big deal anymore. I mean, most, most of you probably know the story ended well, but in this moment, Joseph didn't know anything other than the fact that his brothers, whom he loved, had thrown him in the pit and were leaving him to die. And it says, and then they went and sat down to eat. But even in the midst of Joseph's anguish, in the midst of his suffering, uh, we learn that God is still in control, right? He is still sovereign. He is still the master of turning lemons into lemonade. All throughout Joseph's life, even when he was in the pit, God was in control. So like I said, at first, Joseph's brothers planned to kill him. Okay, verse 20 says this. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So what changed their minds? It was their oldest brother, Reuben. Right? Reuben tried to rescue them from their hands. He says this. In Genesis 37, 21 and 22, let's not kill him. He said, why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So was it Reuben who was protecting Joseph's life or was it the sovereignty of God? Who was watching over Joseph and protecting him? Have you ever sensed the hand of God over you, protecting you? I know I have. Um, so let's look at something else here. Verse 24 tells us 
that Joseph's brothers threw him into a cistern. It says this. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now remember, the purpose of a cistern is to hold water. Right? Cisterns were usually pear-shaped, um, about 15 to 20 feet deep, and the opening was about two to three feet, and there was usually a stone cover over the opening. Now, scholars say that had there been water in the cistern that Joseph was thrown into, he probably would have drowned or died of hypothermia. And yet, verse 24 says, there was no water in it. Coincidence? Or the sovereignty of God? Here's something else. We learn in verse 28 that Joseph was sold to a band of Midianites who were on their way to Egypt. It says this. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. They didn't take him to Syria. They didn't take him to Persia. They didn't take him to Mesopotamia. They took him to Egypt. So how does that reveal the sovereignty of God? So think about the role Egypt would play in the lives of the Israelites for the years to come. If Joseph had not been sold as a slave to Egypt, into Egypt, right, Jacob and his sons would have never gone to live in Egypt. That means there never would have been a need for Moses, right? No need for Moses to come deliver the Israelites out of slavery. There would have been no plagues. No exodus, no Ten Commandments, no promised land, no Israel, no Nazareth, no Jesus. If Joseph hadn't been thrown into that pit and sold as a slave in Egypt, the entire course of history would be different. It's fascinating when you think of this one juncture in the course of history. Had it gone in a slightly different direction, how everything would have changed. So even in the midst of this horrible, painful, scary situation, we can see God's sovereignty at work. So let's talk some more about pits. Many of us, through no fault of our own, were tossed into a pit. You can be thrown into a pit by an alcoholic family member who leaves a huge path of destruction in their wake. You can be thrown into a pit as a child by your parents who suddenly abandon you and you find you're an orphan. You can be thrown into a pit by your spouse telling you that after many years of marriage, now they want a divorce, which sadly, then causes your kids to be thrown into a pit, right? Because they, through no fault of their own, now have a broken family. You can be thrown into a pit by a health issue. You can be thrown into a pit by sudden financial loss. 
You can be thrown into a pit when family members just make bad decisions. You can be thrown into a pit when a family member gets hurt or killed or gets a horrible medical diagnosis. Maybe a sibling dies prematurely. My wife was 14 when her brother died. He was 19. He was trying to put a coin on a railroad track. And the train just destroyed him. Or maybe it's your child that dies prematurely. No parent should have to outlive their child. That will put you in a pit. You can be thrown into a pit when a family member, someone you love, someone you trust, they abuse you emotionally, physically, sexually. Many of us found ourselves in a pit long before Joseph's age of 17. Many of us sitting here today are still in that pit that we've been sitting in for years. Here are a few reasons why. For starters, when someone throws us in a pit, um, obviously we have someone else to blame, right? It's their fault. Maybe we know in their heart that it wasn't their intention, but it still has the capacity to eat us alive, right? With bitterness and with resentment. Um, or how about the times when you've been thrown into the pit by a family member, right? Or a friend, or someone you trusted. I mean, it would have been hard enough if Joseph had been thrown into the pit by strangers. Instead, his own brothers did it. His own brothers. And they meant to. Right? Scripture says that after Joseph's brothers threw him into the pit, they sat down to eat a meal. Think about that for a moment. They'd just thrown their brother into a deep hole, like 12 to 15 feet deep. He's probably screaming, he's pleading, he's thrashing, he's trying to get free. But apparently the brothers weren't sick to their stomachs at what they'd just done, right? They pulled out their lunches and they sat down and ate. Genesis 42:21 describes what was coming out of the pit while they had their lunch. It says, "We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen." One of the major themes of the story of Joseph is forgiveness. Forgiveness. We have to learn how to forgive, uh, even when people have really hurt us. We need to learn to forgive like Christ forgave when he was on the cross, right? He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Translation, they don't have a clue what they're doing right now. 
Whoever threw you into the pit that you're in uh, most likely doesn't have any idea how much it hurt you. Probably wouldn't get it if you told them in detail how much it hurt you. They may not have a clue how much it affected your decisions, your relationships, even how you live your everyday life. Forgive them not only for their destructive actions, forgive them also for their ignorance. Um, you have no other choice if you want to get out of that pit. Nothing will keep you trapped in that pit longer than unforgiveness. When we don't forgive someone, even if they really hurt us, right, it only strengthens the grip of our bondage to that person. When we won't forgive, the people we probably want to be around least because they've hurt us so badly are the very people we bring with us emotionally wherever we go. We are chained to them through unforgiveness. Forgiveness, too, isn't the same as trust. Forgiveness can come in an instant, but trust generally has to be rebuilt, and that takes time. We can let go of any bitterness or resentment or ill will uh, we might feel towards someone. We can release that to the Lord in an instant. But it can take time before we trust that person again. Sometimes we get those two things confused. Many years ago, uh, I forgave my abusive alcoholic stepfather for what he did to my mom, for what he did to my sister and I. I can honestly say I don't harbor any resentment or bitterness or ill will to him anymore. It wasn't easy, but I released him to the Lord. But again, forgiveness is not the same as trust. Okay? And because of my stepfather's alcoholism, um, unfortunately, he missed out on getting to have any kind of relationship with his grandkids, my son, my sister's three kids. Sad, but necessary. Forgiveness uh, is not a passive act. It is an empowering act. Um, probably nothing else requires more of God's power in our lives than forgiveness, right? And nothing is more powerful than forgiving. You will never demonstrate more of God's power in your life than when you agree with the Lord and you practice forgiveness. Forgiveness was the force that kept Christ, by his own submission, nailed to the cross. I mean, he could have taken himself down in a split second. He could have called upon every archangel in the heavens, armed and ready for battle. Had he but said the word, the seas would have swallowed the earth in one gulp. Right? Forgiveness is not a passive act. It is power. It's how we can withstand the onslaught of the forces of hell. 
Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Right? And it's the spirit who gives us the power and the ability to forgive. So we're talking about how to get out of a pit. And often it begins with forgiveness. After forgiveness, I believe the Bible gives us a few more steps for getting out of that pit. The Bible also says that we are supposed to cry out. Cry out. Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2 says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. So in this passage, the person in the pit cries out. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about tears, although that might be part of the process. The kind of crying the psalmist is talking about erupts from the deepest part of a person's soul as if their life depended on it. This idea that God intervenes when someone cries out, like it is all throughout scripture. I wanna give you a few examples. Psalm 72, verse 12. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. Psalm 9, verse nine and 12 say this. The Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. He does not ignore the cries of those who suffer. Psalm 116, verses 1 through 3 says this. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy. Because he bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Death wrapped its ropes around me. The terrors of the grave overtook me. I saw only trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Please, Lord, save me. So why does the Lord wait for us to cry out? He already knows what we need. Like, God's all-knowing. Um, he knows what we need before we even ask him. So that may be the case, but Scripture shows this pattern over and over again, right? That God usually waits until we cry out. We see it in Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8. It says this. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is sovereign, and he has his reasons for responding the way he does. Um, but from what I can tell, I think he usually waits for us to cry out to him first so that we can come to the end of ourselves and live in utter dependence on him. And second, so he can remove all doubt about who came to our rescue. 
right? Otherwise, we might just chalk up our deliverance to chance, right? We might say something like, well, things have a way of just working themselves out, don't they? Things don't just work themselves out. God works them out. Blessed is the one who understands that truth and lives by it. Also, God is unequivocally driven by his love for you. As you come out of that pit, God will be more interested in you knowing your deliverer than knowing your deliverance. The king of all creation wants to reveal himself to us, and he's willing to come to our lowest place, the pit of despair, and reveal more of who he is and how much he loves us. That is what God is after. So, the next step for getting out of that pit after, after forgiveness, after crying out, is submission. Submission. Submission in its broadest sense uh, is when we come to the foot of the cross and we bear our hearts and our souls before God. It's giving up control and it's agreeing with what God says about himself and what he says about us. Submission takes place every time you tell God how much you need him. It happens when you're really honest with him. You tell him what's on your mind. You tell him what kind of mess you're in, what's on your heart. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, the Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. And if you sense there's any pride in you, submit that to the Lord. Pride can definitely keep us in that pit. Keeps us from humbling ourselves. It keeps us from crying out to God. Submission clears the path so that the king of glory can come in. If you hold nothing back, if you hold nothing back, neither will God. So again, to get out of that pit, begins with forgiveness, crying out, submission. And the last step is to agree. To agree with what God already wants. What do I mean by that? What I'm saying is that even though we may be in a pit of despair, there's not only power in forgiveness and crying out in submission, there's power in speaking out the word of God. Right? There's power in agreeing with what God has already said in his word. There's power in agreeing with what God already wants. So how do we do that? Well, I'm not, I'm not talking about just like mumbling under your breath, right? If it is all possible, 
for you to do so, speak it out. It doesn't have to be loud, right? It's just important that your own ears hear it. Why? Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Your faith will be built by hearing your own voice speak the words of Christ. So over the years, I've incorporated scripture uh, into my own personal prayers. I've also led uh, many groups where scripture memorization uh, was, was part of our regular weekly rhythm. Many times I'll be speaking and praying scriptures um, just out loud, just, just trying to plant them into my memory, right? An obvious one to start with is the Lord's Prayer. Then the Psalms. Pray through the Psalms. You can start with Psalm 23. Sometimes I'll also include various prayers that have come down throughout church history. There's the Jesus prayer, right, which is this. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's short. Um, but that prayer goes all the way back to the desert fathers in the Egyptian desert in the 5th century. Um, I, I, I pray that prayer over and over, just, just trying to center myself on him and on his love and on his grace. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There are others, other prayers throughout history, like you may be familiar with St. Patrick's breastplate. Sometimes it's called the Christ with me prayer. I think it'll show up on the screen. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Or there's the prayer of St. Francis, right? Or the various creeds of the faith, like the, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, right? Who was conceived by the Holy, if you're old school, ghost. You're more modern, you say spirit, right? These are wonderful prayers to pray. One reason uh, praying scripture and these ancient prayers is such a big help is that sometimes when we go to pray, we don't have the, like we, we don't have the right words to say. We can't think of what to say, right? And God's word carries supernatural power, right? It is, it is his very breath on the page that when you, when you give voice to it, you are releasing it into your own life. 
I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, this scripture, but it's, it's applicable here. 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a good one to memorize. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I am not advocating for a name-it-claim-it theology, but there is power in God's word, right? And speaking God's word out loud has power. And the more you memorize it, the more you proclaim it out loud, the more power comes. And the more you memorize that, uh, the more you can do it wherever you are. Right? I would also recommend singing God's word. Singing God's word. There is power in that as well. Okay? I often sing scripture. Lord's Prayer, different psalms. Um, most of you know I used to be an opera singer. So I guess it makes sense when I say I like to sing scripture. But you do not need to be a trained singer in order to sing scripture. Right? Psalm 100 says to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Sing your heart out to Jesus. And don't worry about what you sound like. Don't worry about what people will think. Right? I guarantee you, the Lord will love it. And singing God's word has the effect of building our faith. Right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So when you're in the pit, forgive, cry out to the Lord, Submit to the Lord, agree with his word, meaning speak it out, sing it out, declare God's truth over your life. When we do these things, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to fill us up, right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Our faith returns and our passion for God begins to burn. You can't just sit in the pit until one day, like out of the blue, you suddenly have the faith to get out. Like, let God use your mouth to help build up your faith. So on days when you feel down, you feel discouraged, you don't feel like declaring God's truth over your life, you don't feel like doing any of this stuff, do it more. On days when you want to do it the least, do it the most. That means speaking out God's word and singing his word even louder. The enemy knows that if he can get you to quit praying, he can make you stay in that pit. Whatever you do, don't quit. Show the enemy that if he messes with you, you will call out God's word even more, right? Nothing does him damage like the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I want to close uh, by reading Psalm 40 again to you, but this time the first three verses says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. 
He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you're in the business of pulling people out of the pit. God, I pray, for, I pray for those folks here today who are in a pit right now. Uh, whether they got there themselves or they were thrown in through no fault of their own, Lord, do what you do best and deliver them from the darkness. Lord, bring them out of bondage and into freedom. Just lift them out of that slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. God, set their feet on a rock and give them a firm place to stand. And Lord, put a new song in their mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And Lord, may, may many people see what you've done the transforming power of the good news of the gospel of grace, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. May they see and fear and put their trust in you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.